0: Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Small Talk, Big Topics, an the AGA Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson. I am flying solo today as CS and Nina are both on vacation, and I was told I was not allowed to go. But that's okay, because today we have an exciting conversation for you. We have paired up with the Trainee and Early Career Committee to bring you a conversation about artificial intelligence and the world of gastroenterology and hepatology. It's an exciting conversation that is not sponsored by ChatGPT. It's just us. With me today are three real experts in the field. First off, we have Dr. Renu. Donna Sakarin, who is an assistant professor of medicine in gastroenterology. We have Dr. Ali Strauss, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. And then we have Dr. Daniel Penries, who is a second-year fellow at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, all of whom have an interest and focus on artificial intelligence in gastroenterology and hepatology. It was an exciting conversation. I'm proud to be part of it, and I hope you're going to enjoy. So, since there's no one else here to banter with, let's just get to it. Have a good day, everyone.
1: Hey, everyone. My name's Allie Strauss. I am a transplant hepatologist at Johns Hopkins University. I just finished up doing my fellowship in gastroenterology and my transplant hepatology year at Johns Hopkins as well, and I'm in my first year. and During that time, I was able to do research track during fellowship and obtain my PhD. And my focus for that PhD was fairness and artificial intelligence-based clinical decision support tools, specifically focusing on their ability to potentially address biases that we see in healthcare, and at the very least, not make them worse. And... Obviously, because of my clinical interests, this was all in the setting of liver transplantation, so honing in on access to transplant.
0: Awesome. Renu, you might introduce yourself next?
2: Yes, yeah, sure, thank you. Hi, I'm Renu Dhanasekaran. I'm an assistant professor at Stanford GI. I'm a trained transplant hepatologist. I trained a few years back at uh, Mayo Clinic before moving to Stanford. I'm a physician scientist. My lab focuses on liver cancer. We study how the immune system allows the cancer to escape and grow. My interest in artificial intelligence is uh, more recent. I'm part of the AGA Future Leaders Program, and we took on a project to identify how the field of uh, GI is going to change with the advances in artificial intelligence. And that led me to a lot of reading and sort of more comprehensive understanding of where all this is going. And being embedded within Silicon Valley and at Stanford, I have been exposed to a lot of the latest and greatest things happening in AI. And I look at it from a policy perspective and how trainees and future GI physicians should be embracing this. So happy to be part zero.
0: Awesome. All right,
3: Dan, you want to close this out on introductions at least? Yeah, hey everyone, I'm Dan Penrice. I'm a second year GI fellow at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm on a clinical investigator track, so I've had a lot of time to focus on research in mainly remote patient monitoring thus far, and I've looked at how we can use remote patient monitoring to help prevent readmission in patients with decompensated cirrhosis, and this project has kind of spun out into a lot of other projects using AI in various forms of apps to try to prevent complications and improve quality of life in patients with chronic liver disease, and I really see AI as kind of becoming a mainstay in our practice over the coming years and something I definitely want to be a part of going forward. So first off, I do want to acknowledge that this is the
0: most hepatologist that have been on this program ever. I did not know we were sponsored by ASLD to this week, but apparently we are. So I'll have to make sure we do those product announcements for bile salts or whatever we're using nowadays. So, Randy, I know you said you came a little late to the game. I'm curious, Mike and Adley, did either of you have like young inspiration to AI or like, were you drawn to this kind of younger in your life or does just kind of develop over the years?
2: If I may go first. So AI, in a way, this question, I don't feel too bad about it because I think AI itself, at least for the medical field, is relatively young. I came to it sort of tangentially, and this is not the field where I do research. However, I feel that the field itself is young. So that way, I don't feel I'm too late to the game in that sense. However... Yeah, I hang out with people who seem to be like my students or the undergrads at Stanford who I discuss this with. They saw its potential or where it's going much earlier than I did. And I think with GPT, sort of it's so much in the forefront. Everyone's using it. Everyone's talking about it. And it's become a much bigger conversation within our field and, you know, even outside. So, yeah, maybe we are in the early days.
0: Fair enough. Full disclosure, ChatGPT will be joining us for this conversation later. I have engaged it to see what questions to ask you as experts. Ali, Dan, what about you guys? Early on, like movies like
3: iRobot, was that the source here? Or? I'd say for me, you know, I mean, I've always been interested in computers from a young age, like even playing around with like Napster, downloading music when I was a young kid. And I think as, you know, I got opportunities in the professional world to, to kind of apply these these things I know about computers to what I enjoy doing, which is practicing medicine and and learning more about liver disease and trying to, improve the care of patients with liver disease, I realized that there's kind of a happy medium here in a mesh where you can, these things can collide. And I've been able to focus my research on that, which has been really, really cool. I think, I don't know if any of us realized quite the explosion that was going to happen here in the last three months with AI and medicine and kind of the new possibilities on the horizon now with generative AI and kind of the the possibilities that presents. But yeah, it's, it's an exciting time in medicine. I think, you know, everyone that's kind of touching AI right now and, and working in AI a little bit is is really kind of, blown away and maybe a little scared of the possibilities.
1: Yeah. So to piggyback, I think it happened when I was younger too. So I think not quite as young as Dan, not when I was playing video games. I actually haven't been a gamer, but when I was in medical school, I think a lot of things were sort of coming together in, for me, what was important for what I was passionate about and what I found interesting. And for me, that was a combination of my medical school has this really awesome opportunity where you can do kind of like a minor while you're in medical school. It's called a scholarly concentration. And we had one in health systems engineering. So a surgeon who kind of had a small cohort of 10 of us max in a year would teach us about engineering. So that's where my mind first got open to engineering. Cause I sort of just thought engineers just built bridges until I realized there were lots of types of them. So that's when I learned how to learn about machine learning and process improvement and data and using data to inform how we are making decisions. So I would say that was one big moment for me was in med school. So we're talking, this was back like 2010. I was like learning R and so that was sort of turning on at the same time I was a medical student. Cause I was, so that scholarly concentration turned into a master's in industrial engineering. So I did an MD MIE. And at that same time I was a medical student And medicine was going through the paper to EHR thing. So in some of our rotations, we were using paper. In some of our hospitals, we were using HRs. And I was just like, man, this EHR thing is going to be great. I've always been an early adopter. And I was just like, it's going to speed line everything we do. And it's going to help us make decisions. And I just saw so much potential. And obviously now we're like 13 years later. And (laughs) I don't know if we're maximizing it or even close to that. But seeing that potential for me- the change in medicine was exciting. And then also in medical school, I was doing medical mission trips like a lot of med students do and involved in student-run free clinics. So this passion for you know helping the underserved and minority populations was in there too. So I got to finally figure out how to bring all that together once I was a fellow, which has been really fun.
0: So as we kind of embark on this conversation, why don't we lay the kind of land. So where's AI in gastroenterology and hepatology right now? So what are the areas it's working in and kind of has been a little bit supported, a little bit present? And then we'll get into kind of where is it going?
2: So I can give you like a big picture of what I think is happening when I first started looking at it, I, I was like, oh, I don't use AI. And then I realized that all of us do use AI. We, it's so amazing that we don't even know we use it, maybe. If you're using Google Maps to get somewhere, if you're using Amazon and it's suggesting you to shop something that you don't need, a lot of this is happening using AI-based algorithms that these a lot of our tech products use. And if you're on Instagram for longer than you should be, maybe it's because of the algorithm that's figured out what you like. So I feel it's insidious and it's there in a lot of our day-to-day activities. For GI, where I see a lot of research and I looked at funding mechanisms, where companies are getting started, where there's a lot of excitement, seems to be around image analysis, endoscopy, to really enhance our ability to make endoscopic diagnoses, to automate some of this, to decrease medical errors, to make it faster and more efficient. And that's obviously a great space. And as endoscopists who are routinely looking at these images, the idea that we would have this tool that will help us, I think is fascinating. And we at Stanford tried some of these colonoscopy enhancement tools, and I do see the promise in that. The second aspect is where our patient care delivery identifying gaps in access to care, making it easier for patients to reach us and us to reach the patients. There seems to be multiple ways that can impact. However, I, I am more aware of the pitfalls. Just like Ali mentioned, when, we, when Epic came along, we thought it's going to revolutionize our lives. And maybe in some ways, it made it worse, even though it made it worse, better in some ways. So there are pitfalls to how fast this is going and where this is going. And uh, that's where I see the role of, you know, big organizations like AGA and such to step in and be part of the ethical guardrails.
3: Just to piggyback off that a little bit, I think that's great points. And I kind of make an analogy when, when I talk about AI to people to like a basic science standpoint. I think AI right now, we're still on the bench. We're still running experiments and trying to figure out, you know, what works and what doesn't from an experimental standpoint. We really haven't taken these things and ran randomized clinical trials in a clinical setting to figure out, you know, do these really improve patient care? Do our predictive models really lead to better patient outcomes? Do our endoscopic assist tools really lead to finding more polyps in a really controlled setting? And I think that's the next step that we're going to see over the next 10 years is we're going to take all these papers that have been published showing the potential of AI and really try to see if in a clinical setting, does this actually work? Does this lead to better patient outcomes? Is it fair and, and just and equitable? There's a lot of questions that are going to need to be answered, I think, about this technology.
0: So what's being used in practice right now? Like besides for maybe some of the EMR stuff, although there's some stuff in the EMR coming down the pipeline, like what is actually kind of in day-to-day practice right now? So what are you using at Stanford? What are you using at Mayo? What tools are there already?
3: I could talk about from a predictive standpoint at Mayo. So in built into our EMR, we have some AI predictive tools, a few that our group has worked on such things as predicting cirrhosis likelihood based on an EKG, risk of readmission in a patient we have in the hospital. You know, we have some simple tools we can plug into and kind of pull up in a patient's chart and have the AI algorithm running in the background on this. I wouldn't say they're really mainstream though yet. You know, These are kind of things that people that know about them are using and kind of looking at. But the predictive tools I don't think are, are mainstream yet, at least at Mayo. Mm-hmm.
2: So at Stanford, we have this AI-assisted colonoscopy for cancer screening. We did exactly what Dan was just suggesting. There was a randomized controlled trial. We were randomized to either do it with the AI assist or on our own. This data was published recently. Uh, Yuri Laudebaum at Stanford has been leading a lot of these efforts. The big picture is if you're already a great gastroenterologist who scopes really well and sees all the polyps, how much is it going to help you? I don't know. If you are someone who's rushing through and is not very careful, it likely could flash something and stop you. That's how I see at least the AI-assisted colonoscopy. On a community level, on a larger scale, this might make a big difference, but in high-volume centers with high adenoma detection rates, maybe not. The second thing is AI in um, EMR in electronic medical records. I've been part of a project where they, for instance, took the referral records, and the AI would make you a summary. Now all of us get huge bundles of outside patient records with you know nursing notes and vitals and whatnot. So this can actually you write an algorithm and it's gonna screen and give you like a high level summary and that was super useful. Definitely makes efficient you know use of your time. And another one I've seen is, I think Dan mentioned it, is sort of monitoring patients. In rooms, they have these computers, and the videos are being monitored by AI for events. Is the patient getting out of bed, and is the patient calling for help And you haven't? So then it alerts the nurse's station rather than someone constantly looking at these videos, and I can totally see
1: how that can be a big tool. So these are some of the examples what I've seen here at Stanford.
3: Okay.
1: Yeah, at Hopkins, I would say I agree with you guys that There is sort of people using things here and there, but not something widespread specific to GI, although we did have the AI-assisted colonoscopies at our center where we could use them if we wanted. It was sort of a trial period. They're gone now, and I think we're just figuring out if we're going to bring them back. And I think there was hit or miss on what people thought about it, but overall, they were received pretty well. And to touch on the whole point on if you're already doing really well, I don't know how much they're going to help. There was that NEMI study in GIE just this year where they looked at pre and post using these kinds of assistive devices on your colonoscopies and people that already had high baseline ADRs. It's not really helping that much. But I think that you know, we're just in the beginning. So we probably need to fine tune these things and totally agree with Dan that we need to see randomized control trials, like any interventions, you know, whether it's a medication or procedure, we need to test it more broadly.
0: So two follow-up questions. One, I'm a lay person in this arena, so I'm sure I'll ask some questions that are a little silly. But I mean, obviously the one I've seen the most about has been the polyp protection devices where they light up a light, make a noise when you pass by a polyp. In the hepatology space, is there anything just hepatology related that I might not know about or the audience might not know about
2: where I've seen it. And I think Dan and Ali do the research. So they probably are actually developing these tools, but a lot of predictive modeling, as you know, most of the current regression logistic regression sort of models, what they use is they use like known factors and there's a a way statistically we do it, but we could be discounting some other factors that we are not taking into account. So AI there's a the black box where you just throw in everything that could have potentially impacted it. Now it gives you a model that at times can be really robust because it's recognizing things that you missed on your traditional statistical modeling. So I've seen models for predicting outcomes, who should get transplanted, access to care, things like that. That's where I see in hepatology.
0: Okay. But nothing if I understand, right? Because I know Dan was mentioning something similar. Nothing is in the prime time, right? nothing is on the market just yet that's widely dispersible that we know of?
1: I think you could argue there's some predictive models that use machine learning for HCC. I think that HCC has been a very well-studied area where people are using predictive modeling pretty easily because you can go on a website. Some of these articles have made it readily available that you can plug in your patient's information and see what their prediction models look like for their HCC, you know, risk of recurrence.
0: So the other question between Hopkins, Mayo and Stanford, right, we're talking about pretty large, major academic centers. I would venture to guess that your centers are all getting tools early, especially in the case of Stanford with AI and some tech stuff, maybe even on the ground floor. How widely seen in the communities are some of these pilot detection devices They're not cheap, so I'm curious if there's data on how much they've been adapted so far.
2: For me, I'm not aware of the data because we are at the trial phase. You know, we're checking these out. My sense, this is my opinion, is that there might be wider uptake. And once there's wider uptake, there'll be reduction in cost in the future. If you look at it as this could potentially increase your ADR and decrease your withdrawal time, if you can have that deadly combination, it's very attractive to folks. So I see potential for more wider adoption, but that first step where it passes through with flying colors and it really shows improvement, I think people will be convinced if there is this large RCT that clearly shows increased detection or ideally decreased colon cancer rates, for which obviously it will take long, much longer. As far as I know, it's smaller centers and larger centers individually adopting this, as a trial, seeing how the physicians
1: feel, if they welcome it, then going for it. That's how I see it sort of spreading right now. I uh, was able to be part of a conversation with some private practice groups at a conference. It was like a unique conference that ASG puts on where it kind of brings everyone from the academic world and the private practice world. And there was a lot of conversation around AI and they seem really excited about having it mainly because of the quality metrics part. I think that's what we spend a lot of time talking about. The community practices are like, you know, we spend a lot of money and resources like nursing, combing through records, trying to come up with these quality metrics. So Lakey, I'm probably butchering how to say that name, but Lakey in GIE in 2021 did a paper where they looked at how well we can automate using NLP and optical character recognition to pull these quality metrics out. And I think that that's what a lot of people in the community are going to be excited once we have that readily available. We're doing a project that's along those lines at Hopkins where we're trying to figure out how to automate this too. So I don't think it's a community only issue. I think everyone's sort of wondering how we can more effectively do that, where we're pulling data from the EHR and figuring out how to use a automated algorithm to find the quality metrics, like ADR specifically, withdrawal time, things like that.
0: Okay, so we have some poly detection tools. We got some EMR work. We got maybe some predictive modeling that are kind of out there, maybe more in the big academic centers right now. Maybe starting to become dispersed in the community. So, with that kind of background and with that baseline, where are we going in the next ten years? And honestly, what excites you the most? Like, what is it that you want to see happen, and how are we going to get there?
2: So for what I see, I actually am very optimistic about this. I really feel this is going to change medicine to a large extent. In the beginning, I was skeptical. I felt like you know they always say that, and then they bring on more tech and make our life worse. So I think physician workforce on the whole a little more skeptical about tech, not just AI. However, I feel AI can handle some of these complexities that have come along. For instance, a lot of our just workflow, clinic workflow, hospital workflow is, you know, the hodgepodge of systems that we put together and automation can actually make it run more efficient. Just getting patients to clinic, getting them scheduled, getting them out. I see the downsides that a lot of jobs may be affected here, but this is how it's going. So I, I see there'll be a lot of automation in our clinic workflows. Secondly, I see EMR completely changing. This sort of copy pasting every note and then changing a few words. I don't think we will be doing this 10 years from now. A lot of this can be automated, a lot of the information that needs to be there for insurance companies. We don't need to be spending our time click, click, click all day long. It'll really enhance how we use EMR. And again, I think that's why we need to participate rather than wait for tech companies to solve it all wrong and then try to fix it. We need to be here from the beginning. Endoscopy, image analysis, basic science research, finding the right drug combinations, there's just so much potential on where all this is going to come in. And The world's going to change, apparently, not just medicine, and medicine will go along. So this will change how we do it.
3: Yeah, I I totally agree with Reynu here. I mean, I think I struggle to picture what practice is going to look like 10 years from now, because I think it's going to be vastly different. I think there'll be a period of struggles here in the next five years or so as, as these technologies start getting integrated into practice. And some are going to work. And some aren't. And some are going to make our lives more difficult in the short term. And that's going to lead to a lot of pushback and hostility towards this in the short run. But I think eventually, you know, we'll get to a point where we have more time to spend with patients because a lot of these administrative tasks like clearing out in basket on a day to day basis and spending time documenting patient encounters and even things like working up complex diseases and trying to come up with tough differential diagnoses as long as we're taking a good history we're going to have tools that are going to help us with this in a very efficient way and help us be better physicians better clinicians in terms of ordering the right tests and figuring out the right follow-up and make sure we're interpreting things correctly i think we're going to have a lot of assistance here i don't think it's going to take away our jobs i think it's going to be our assistant it's going to help us make better decisions and think about things in a more clear fashion so i'm really excited about that aspect of things I'm really excited about the patient aspect of things, too. I think patients with complex diseases are going to be much more well taken care of in the future. They're going to have access to resources at home that are actually accurate. Instead of going on Google and Googling you know, what their disease is, they're going to have access to things like medically focused chatbots that can actually communicate with them in, a, in an accurate way and give them recommendations and help them when they're struggling at home and they can't get in to see their GI doctor for another week. And so I'm really excited to see how the, the health of our patients improves in the coming years with this technology.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with everything said. I think that this idea of them replacing physicians, I think that we need to figure out how to embrace it, work with them, like Renu said, them being the developers, and let it augment our care. I think that that's the key thing is allowing it to augment and not replace. And I think I'm excited to see physicians sort of struggle with learning how to trust these things. because. I think we're in the middle of it right now. And what used to be a conversation of it's black box, I don't like it, has already changed. And it's a lot more open-minded, I think, of physicians now to what these different ways that it can help us are what it's going to look like. And I think the other thing I'm excited for is seeing how we can use it to help our trainees. I think that it can bring an aspect to education, medical education, that will be interesting like, will it help you go from zero to proficient? You know, I don't, it's not going to be the thing that makes trainees masters, but will it bring that gap, make that a lot smaller, and help them with training? Like, I would imagine it would be really nice if when I was scoping as a first year, if I had this little green box traveling around the colon with me, telling me what this is, what it's scored as, you know, in case your attending isn't paying attention at that moment. Maybe we're going to be taught by these things. and. Some of these programs, they tell you the NICE classification. They do your Boston Bow Prep score for you. They tell you where you are in the colon. There's de-looping software trying to help you, like, this is the loop you formed and this is how you should correct it, like, right on the screen with you. So I think that it's going to be cool to see how it not only improves our day-to-day life, like Ranu said, with workflows, Not only improves care for patients, but it improves physician education. I mean, it's a no brainer. It's exciting what's ahead.
0: So I would throw out a question to you, Allie, on that point, which would be, I think there could be an argument for physical exam skills with the advent of CT and a few other things have, oh, I don't know. You know, let's put Dan, the fellow on the spot here. Dan, how are your physical exam skills? When you're rounding, do you think that's the solution here? I think they're probably less good than my attendees were when they were at my point in training. So <laughs> I think that was a really nice political answer, and that was well done. No, I, I, look, I mean, like Dr. Strauss here is on, I'm going to say, the younger side early in your career, right? I still pretend I'm an early trainee. I don't think that's accurate anymore. Randy is still an early trainee. I think, you know, the argument we would get, and I certainly got a fellowship, is that we didn't use physical exam skills because we were reliant on tools. And there is an evolution in med ed. It's less about what exactly you know and how, rather how do you piece it together and, and access the information you need to figure out the tool, right? Like, I don't have to calculate a MELD in my head. Can you guys do MELDs in your head or MELD 3.0? That'd, that'd be impressive. But knowing what a MELD is and how to apply it, same thing with a bunch of the, like when MD Calc came out for like 10, 15 years ago. So I do worry, and going back to the point, Ali, I do worry that trainees might rely on these tools to find a polyp and they may not get great at recognizing that tactile feel of a loop or that visual protuberance on the back end of a fold when you're withdrawing kind of and looking at both areas. I think it goes back to what you said earlier, which is augmentation rather than replacement. So I, I wonder how that will play out. I don't know. I can imagine there's going to be pushback from people about that in the educational world, but I'm not sure.
1: And I would say it's funny. So a comparison would be, I was just talking the other day, like, do you remember when we used to use maps, like while we drove?
0: Or MapQuest, when you print it out?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, like the fold out maps, like I remember actually being on road trips, and I'm like co piloting with my dad and like telling him how to get somewhere. And you didn't, people actually gave each other directions. If someone starts telling me directions, I'm like, please stop, I'm just gonna Google Maps it. I'm not gonna remember what you're telling me. So we can't read maps anymore, like travel and getting around and like being, I don't know, navigators. Yeah, we're not as good at navigating by using a map it would be naive to say that it's not going to change the the way that we work and the skills that we have. But people might say, you're going to get, like back in the same, I might say, you're going to get lost more. You're going to rely on your phone and Google Maps. And what if your phone breaks? You know, what if the little green box goes away because the system's down that day and now you're just left to your own devices? So probably people were like, You always need to have a map at your side. There's probably a lot of people that still keep maps in their cars just in case. And I agree with you hundred percent. We need to be aware of that and make sure that we're not using it as a crutch being too reliant. People still need to have skills on their own as well.
0: So actually I think that's a nice transition into another question I want to ask you guys and gals, how do we teach this, right? Like how do we integrate this into our fellowships, our residencies? And when do we adopt this? Because I don't know about you, but I'm always a little wary about being an early adopter, going all in on something, especially when we're talking about a training of a program or a cohort of fellows, residents, what have you. So how do you guys think about that as you think about the AI future? Maybe Dan, why don't we start with you? You're in fellowship. Yeah, I guess speaking from my
3: perspective and kind of my experience thus far, I think just exposing the trainees to what the tenings are working on and what they're being exposed to. You know, as a fellow, I've had an opportunity to kind of sit down on the meetings of the Mayo, you know, innovation team, kind of talking to different companies about how we can integrate products. So I've got to see kind of things at the front line in that aspect. And I think just being part of the conversation and, and kind of having a seat at the table as these things are discussed in terms of how they're going to be integrated in the practice, kind of what the vision is for the next 10 years. I think that's really helpful. It really makes us feel like we're the ones that are going to be ultimately doing a lot of these things that are responsible for the outcomes of what this research is doing. You know, we're going to be the ones practicing for 30 to 40 years with this new technology. So I think make, being invested in kind of having to seat the table is important. But in terms of how to integrate it into like a training program, I think that's just going to kind of depend on what technologies and what tools we actually integrate into practice here in the coming years. But I think as long as it's something being used every day, you know, trainees are going to have exposure to it and learn how to adopt it and probably have skills far up seeding, you know, those who developed it.
2: I feel beyond the training and how to integrate it, how to integrate it currently today in the research space is important that we participate in this. And practicing clinicians who are on the front lines, who know what the pain points and the problems are, work with people who have the solutions. Because a lot of times, this is a really technologically advanced solution. This is not something that you could go to school for six months and become an AI engineer. Eventually, maybe, but right now, it's pretty advanced engineering training to be able to harness the power. So this comes a totally cross-disciplinary. We'll have to work with the engineers who have the know-how. And unless we are there on the front line, serving both as the source of the questions and also as a check on the solutions, that we need to make sure these programs are being appropriately trained on broad, diverse data set because it's junk in, junk out. If we don't participate at this stage, there's going to be solutions and then we are going to be finding ways to claw back. So I feel like the trainees are at, are at a better position to start participating, start their research projects in the space, partner with the engineers and learn some of the lingo, understand what is LLM, NLPA, black box, all these concepts. Even if we don't directly do the coding and the engineering, which I think some people who have training in both spaces uh, are able to do, but for the others, at least to know what it is so we can meaningfully work with the engineers.
1: Yeah, I agree that there's a spectrum of people that I think we need to consider with how do we train people about AI. So I think that spectrum runs from someone who, like you're describing, you know, wants to actually design the tools, right? That's going to require a lot of training and it's a different level. They're going to be working alongside engineers. Then there's kind of somewhere in the middle where maybe you're someone that doesn't want to do the actual development. They're not going to learn how to code, but they do want to be involved. They've got great ideas. They think in this sort of innovative mind frame and they want to collaboratively work with engineers. But then there's the majority of everyone else who doesn't care about designing these tools, (laughs) but they're going to use them. And I think that that's the important thing is like we're all going to be using them whether you care about designing them or not. And so that's the mass group that needs to, I think we need to carefully consider and building curriculum around like anything else, right? Medical school, and I think it should start early, right? They're already talking about starting coding and teaching elementary school kids coding, but like in terms of medicine, we need to start in medical school, designing curriculum that teaches you how to basically understand how they're made what does it mean when they say that they trained it on these people and then they tested it on these people and then they validated it over here and then what does it mean what are the I have to come back to the fair aspect and the just aspect you know how do we teach from medical school and onward our physicians using these tools to question the tools on their ethics not just take what some administrator said hey this is we just paid a bunch of money for this and it's plugged straight into your EHR and it's going to give you this nice risk prediction. It's going to be right in front of you. It's beautiful. And you just are tempted to use it. We need to teach people to question all of it and make sure that it's not going to do harm either, whether it's patient safety, it's like literally going to tell them to do the wrong thing all the way to fairness and in all of the patients that we see, you know, that not some people aren't getting accessed or predictions that are specific to them. So I think that, it's a medical education from med school forward.
0: So, Ali, I'm going to throw this out there. So actually, one of the chat GPT questions that I liked that they generated for this conversation, what ethical considerations should be taken into account when developing and implementing AI technologies in gastroenterology? They didn't say hepatology, but we can broaden the chat GPT question here. So I'm curious, Dan Renew, what do you guys see as the ethical considerations other than what Ali just highlighted?
2: i think it's about what it's trained on and the concern for biases that are being introduced by these ai algorithms have just been there for a while now because they are trained on easily available english language large models and that is excluding a huge proportion of this world and now it's going to be used around the world and that's one of the concerns on how do we make it less racially biased less biased based on where you're from or your language and I personally don't think it's any nefarious scheme to introduce these biases. It's the nature of what is accessible and easy, but that's not good enough that we just use whatever is around and that's not an excuse. That's good enough, especially in medicine where for us equity and fairness are grounding principles. We need to safeguard this for our patients. So the biases are introduced from the training models and a, we need to generate better data. And I think, A lot of healthcare data is siloed, and there are a lot of privacy acts protecting them, which is legitimate. But if they can be used for generating larger models, which are more diverse, which have more input from different backgrounds, I think we should look into that, how to safely do it without compromising patient privacy or safety. So that's where I see our role also, to advocate for it and to push and ask them, what was this trained on? Can we... And I don't think it's enough to just question, but it's also important to provide solutions. And so we need to start making these large data sets that are useful for training.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. I don't have a ton to add to that because that was beautifully stated. I think, you know, as we think about this concept of individualized medicine, we need to make sure it actually is individualized, right? It's not taking somebody else's profile and applying it to yourself. So, Real individualized medicine is hard to do and hard to get to. And I don't think we're anywhere close to there yet. But I think that's just something to kind of keep in mind is like Brady said, you know, it needs to be real diverse, real broad training sets to really come up with data that can apply to an individual level. It's interesting is that we are
0: very much starting to embrace, we're behind, but we're starting to embrace anti-bias training, anti-racism training. We obviously could speak... A whole different topic would be talking about the racism within medicine and a lot of the bias within medicine. So I keep going back to the phrase you said right about crap in, crap out, right? So are we going to bring our biases into these programs as well? And I think you guys are raising that as an important question. And one of the considerations that always, um, especially when you start getting to prognosticating pre-transplant, who's going to succeed, right? Um, I think that's a ripe area for this consideration as well.
2: Yep. True. There's a lot of blind spots in our medical community. I think in the last few years, we are more aware and sensitive to that. And training and the sort of sensitivity training and what we are embracing definitely helps, but doesn't erase it. Many of us, I think, are just not even aware that we have those biases.
0: So I think this brings up a question. Maybe we'll start with you, Renu, because of the work that you and uh, Joanna Mele have been doing with the AGA. What is the role of the society? So, right, you can talk about AGA. We can talk about, again, three hepatologists here, so we'll talk about the ASLD as well, what can those societies be doing in helping us as practitioners and us as academicians and educators and everything else we do, what can they be doing to kind of guardrail against maybe some of the worst tendencies here or really kind of, on the flip side, really support this area of growth for our colleagues' practices and everything we do?
2: Yeah, so that was exactly the question we tackled. What do we foresee? (sighs) or do we envision AGA's role specifically, but this would apply to you know all of the large medical societies. When we reviewed where AGA had been investing some resources or where research had been happening in AI and in you know, gastroenterology, like I mentioned earlier, we saw image analysis, we saw machine learning algorithms, and then prediction modeling, and definitely these things are gonna expand, there's no stopping them. What we suggested, what we felt was a society's role Number one to build a data infrastructure to support AI applications in GI. This way, we can be in control of the kind of diverse and you know robust, because we can break some of these silos and help bring harness the power of these multiple institutions and partners who who usually work with AGA. Second was oversight and regulation of AI systems like mushroom. You, you just. It's just springing up all over, and we really the ethics and the oversight of this they're going to play catch up. So, it would make sense to make a framework and say, Hey, this is okay, this is not okay, at least in principle. And big organizations like AMA does it, AGA, ASLD, they will be in a position to, you know, have ethical committees discuss what's okay and what's not okay. Third thing was physician satisfaction and patient care delivery. The focus on the of the companies, the commercialization is going to be on obviously monetary gains, and I think there's not too many people who think about how to make physicians happy, and I think uh, societies can play a role here to try and you know shape that conversation to say how can we improve patient care delivery, how can we improve EMR to make decrease physician burnout. There are so many solutions that around this table we can come up with, but if you Google it, how many companies are working on those solutions because. There's not much money in making physicians happy or even patients happy, unfortunately. So AI can have great, powerful role there. And I think the societies can move towards those less commercial, but equally or even more important spaces.
0: Dan, Ali, anything to add to what you would want to see from your societies in
3: terms of support? I don't know so much support, but I think at the last ASLB meeting, there was a lot of content in machine learning space and in the AI space, which I think is a great next step. And, you know, kind of highlighting this work and the potential of this work. There was a JAMA article a few years ago about how to read and critically appraise a machine learning article. I think that's something all the societies can kind of take note from and kind of help their members, you know, how do we interpret these, this research that's being done? How do we read these articles effectively and, and understand them and critically appraise them? Because more and more of the journals we're reading are filled with these research in machine learning and AI and kind of, you know, looking towards the future. And I think it's helpful for the societies to kind of help their members better understand these principles, be better equipped to read these articles and really understand them and what it means to their practice.
0: As we're winding down, I want to ask you kind of a traditional last question that we ask all of our friends and colleagues that come on this podcast I am going to do the chat GPT version of that question, that variance. What advice would you give to students or young professionals and trainees who are interested in pursuing a career in gastroenterology in the era of AI? Does it change your advice or
3: does your advice kind of stay the same? I guess as the current trainee, I can go first. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think it makes me feel even better. my my decision to go into gastroenterology. I think the future is so exciting right now, and the possibilities are so exciting. You know, medicine has for years struggled with, I think, a system that really maybe isn't equipped to deal with the complexity and scale of the patients we have. And I think there's potentially a solution on the horizon for that, which is going to make practice really exciting and really rewarding to take care of patients in a more effective manner and provide really high quality care. So I think to get to the kind of the spot, you know, just continue to take opportunities, continue to learn, continue to read about AI and medicine and how things are changing. And they're gonna be far surpassing, you know, where we're at right now when, when they get to our level.
1: I think there's so many ways that you can be involved with using AI in GI. I'm sort of not sure where to start, but I think if it's from a research perspective, I think these models have to get trained on expert opinion, like you need a gold standard, every prediction model or the thing that you're trying to look at needs to be compared to the right answer. And if you're early on, and you don't know how these algorithms work, and you don't really have a good idea yet, a way to sort of start to get involved, if you pick up any of these articles, like, especially the colonoscopy ones, you know, it says five experts read thousands of images of what polyps looked like and labeled them, and these images and predictions and EHR datas, you have to find the people with cirrhosis if you're going to predict who's going to get cirrhosis. And, you know, jump in and like other research you might do in a wet lab or if it's manual chart review, you kind of kind of put the work in. And that's a way to start to understand how these things get trained and to help others, your mentors, or establish relationships with engineers. The engineers want to have all this all these great ideas that they want to do, but they need the clinical expertise. So it's a great way to build relationships with people, you know, that's mutual where you're giving them something and and they're helping you as well. So I think that's sort of a, an intro. I think that from there, maybe just thinking about questions that you can bring to mentors or, someone that's doing work in this area is like just start thinking about this stuff. Start asking questions. You're young, you're young trainees. You grew up with technology. Like when you're driving in your car and you're thinking about how your car's telling you where to drive, push yourself to say like, how can I use this concept of it knowing like predicting the traffic and the weather and all these different things with trying to predict patients that, might need more resources or something like that. And the process of driving a car and the process of getting through transplant, like start to think about these questions and then maybe you bring these questions to the engineers and then they can start to say, oh, that's a classification problem. You know, that's this kind of problem. So I think that that's a good way to go from zero to kind of involved. And my third point would just be, don't be afraid as a trainee to reach out and send some cold emails, some cold Twitter messages, like, You might feel like I'm at an institution and no one's doing this stuff, but I'm really interested in it. Oh, I'm just screwed. And I just will never be able to do it. No, like the world is small. The pandemic happened and opened us to a world of virtual collaborations, reach out to people, meet them at conferences and then continue that work, follow up with them. And you'll be surprised innovative people that get excited about stuff. If you're excited too, they want to work with you.
0: All right, Randy, close this out. What you got?
1: So, I read this quote, or I imagined
2: it, and I know Matthew you said you're not one, but i'm I think you might be, but anyway, they said, early adopters are future leaders, so if you're here in training, taking off in G i you probably want to lean into AI. This is the future that's coming, whether we want it or not. The second thing is, I think Ali mentioned it to not wait for this to come to us if you used any great website, whether it's Twitter or Google, and then you went back and logged into Epic and you're wondering why it's clunky, why you're struggling with it, I think it's because we waited for someone to provide the solution. I think we need to jump on this faster. So we are part of the solution and we are part of the process and not wait till it comes to us. And third thing is, regardless of what your focus of research is, whether it's clinical, translational, basic, this can help you move faster, go faster, go longer. So for your projects, look at different ways you can embrace uh, automation or input from AI. That can help you. All
0: right, guys. Well, thank you so much for being here. Before we let you go, can you just give us uh, your Twitter handles, Instagram handles, where we can send carrier pigeons? How can people reach you?
2: For me, I'm very active on Twitter. Even if I'm not posting, I'm reading. So <laughs> I'm on Twitter. My <laughs> handle is my first name, Renumati, followed by... First initial of my last name. That's D. So it's Renomati D. That's my Twitter handle.
3: Fabulous. I'm similar to radio. I'm an avid Twitter reader, but not an avid poster. But my handle is Daniel D. Penrice. I'd be happy to connect with anyone on Twitter and you know discuss things from a training perspective anytime.
1: My Twitter is Ali Strauss M D, so A-L-Y-S-T-R-A-U-S-S-M-D. And I'm also not great with Twitter. So if you really want to get a hold of me, you should email me. I'm so bad at checking it. So it's Allie, just A-L-Y, at (laughs) jhmi.edu.
0: Three avid Twitter followers, it sounds like. Thank you guys for being here so much. This is wonderful.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you.